Well, this morning we will be continuing and finishing up the sermon series that we've been going through for the last several weeks through the book of Judges. And so if you would stand with me once again as we read from God's word, turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 20. The sermon text is actually Judges chapter 20 and chapter 21, but we're just going to read a little bit of the first part. All right, chapter 20, beginning there in verse 1. It says, Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mitzpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mitzpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed an abomination and an outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent And none of us will return to his house, but now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. Let's pray. Father, we commit this time to you as we examine your word. And we pray that you would speak through it to us. uh, That we might recognize the way that the people of Israel are living at this particular time. How oftentimes we live in a similar way. And Lord, let us be convicted that we follow you. That we seek after you and your rule in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. You may be seated. Now, the first thing that we need to focus on is we need to remember where we are here in this book. Uh, the people of Israel, all throughout the book of Judges, they are living uh, in a way that they're, they're living as though they have no leadership. So they, they have no leadership politically. They have no real leadership religiously. And so they're kind of like a glutton at a smorgasbord with all of the Canaanite idols. They're just gathering these idols to themselves and they're, they're eating and they're worshiping and they're bowing down. They're doing all of the things that they were told not to do by God in the covenant. And so in the beginning of the book of Judges, God, if you remember, allows the threat of the Canaanites to persist in the land. He doesn't he doesn't push them all the way out by his own strength, which he could have, but he allows the Canaanites to stay in the land for a particular purpose, and that is so that the people of Israel would know 
war so that they would understand what was worth fighting for. That the covenant, that being a part of God's covenant people, that is worth fighting for. And so he begins to give the people judges. And these judges are supposed to lead the people of Israel. Uh, They are supposed to guide them, give them advice and counsel. But they're also supposed to be their spiritual guides and, and, and people that can stand in the gap when the Canaanites rise up and enslave the Israelites. Now, when we look back at the, at the book of Judges, some of the judges were good, right? Some of them were not so good. Some of them were, were bad judges. And in this last story that we looked at last week, we find this is probably one of the most disturbing stories in all of the Bible. If you find another one that's more disturbing than that one where people are getting chopped into 12 pieces, please let me know because I need to read that one. But this is a, an awful, horrendous story in the book of Judges. And here's what has happened. A Levite is traveling from Bethlehem, enters the territory of Benjamin, and then he goes into this house with this older man and they're going to stay the night there with that, that older man. And then this herd of men gather around the house and began beating on the walls and beating on the doors saying, you know, send out this man so that we can know him, so that we can have a sexual relationship with him. And so what does the Levite do? Do they bar the doors and and try to hunker down and wait for daylight? No. The Levite takes his concubine, which we're a little bit confused at this point, whether she's a wife or a concubine. He's called her husband. So this relationship's a little bit strange. But what does he do with her? He opens the door a crack and he shoves her out the crack out into this herd of perverts. That's exactly what he does for this woman who's supposed to be his wife. Now, then we come to this story here. He he's taken his wife and he's chopped her up into 12 pieces and he sent her throughout the tribes of Israel saying, look at what has happened in Benjamin. Will we not gather together and do something about this? And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 20. So the tribes have gathered from all over the land. So it says from Dan to Beersheba. What he's basically saying is from from California to Maryland. Every single state is accounted for. Everybody is there. All of the tribes have gathered together. All of them are responding in horror as they as they collect their own dismembered body part of this Levite's concubine. The chiefs of the tribes, they meet together and then they ask the Levite. This is what they're asking. What in the world happened? What in the world happened? And then we read just a moment ago the Levite's response. Let's read it again. Look at verse four with me. It says, and the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin. I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and I cut her into pieces and I sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you give your advice and counsel here. So this is what he says. This is what has happened. This is the situation. And then they begin to respond. The chieftains decide that they're going to unite together and go uh, and execute the guilty men of Gibeah. Now, this is what's extremely interesting in this story. The author says that they are united as one man. This phrase. They're united as one man. Now, the interesting thing about this is they haven't been united yet. They haven't been united to, to fight against the Canaanites. 
So if they could unite as one man against their own tribe, why in the world could they not unite as one man to fight against the Canaanites? But here we find there's this continual irony throughout the story as they do things that just don't make any sense. And they do things that are completely against God's will altogether. So the chiefs send their envoy to Gibeah. And look what it says there in verse 13 down to verse 17. This is what happens. He says, now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men. Who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left handed. And every one of them could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel apart from Benjamin mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. And all of these were men of war. Now, note, note this, that the 700 men from Benjamin, these, these choice men, they were experts at slings. And so for Israel, fighting against Benjamin is really like taking a knife to a gunfight in this particular day. And it's estimated that, that these men of Benjamin, being experts with the sling, they could sling a one-pound stone up to 90 miles an hour. And what they're saying is here is they could hit a hair. They were so good at it. They were accurate. Not only were they throwing these stones, slinging these stones incredibly fast, they were, they were lethal with these stones. They, they could kill a man by hitting him in the head. Now, if you go to YouTube, I was, I was reading this. I was just fascinated about these stones and slinging. I began to think about David and all of, of what happened with him and Goliath. If you go to YouTube, there's people who have constructed these kinds of slings and they they whirl them about and they sling the stone and it's going really fast. They don't have anybody clocking how fast they're throwing it. Probably not as good as the guys here. But the case is you, you see these watermelons just explode from these stones. In fact, there's one guy, he takes this sling and he slings the stone and he hits a coconut and pops it. Now, imagine what that would do to a person's head. And here are these men, they can hit a hair. When they want to. So these men of Benjamin, they're just, they're all up on the high ground. They're ready to take it to the enemy. And here's what we have. The men of Israel go before the Lord then finally at Bethel. And Judah is selected. Judah is to go up first. So the army draws near to Gibeah. But who is on the high ground? The 700 chosen men. The Benjamites, the ones who are sling experts, and they just begin to pick these guys off as they try to approach the, the city. They just take them out. And Judah is sent packing. And they lose an incredible amount of men. Now, the, the night they, that, that night after they've, they've come back, they go before the Lord again, and they ask him, should we go up against the Benjamites? And the Lord says, yes. And the following day, what happens? They lose 18,000 men in Israel. So the Israelites are devastated. They don't know what to do. They're crying. They're frustrated. They're angry. And so they go to Yahweh once again. And they're thinking, well, maybe we're just getting all of this wrong. And this time Yahweh tells them, if you go and fight against the Benjamites, you will defeat them. And so the next day, the Israelites, they come to the city and they show their, their force in Gibeah, thinking that they once again will just take it to them. 
They begin to go out and battle against the Israelites. The Israelites retreat. And then an ambush takes place where other Israelites come behind them. And so they've got them in the front and they've got them in the back. They close in on them and they push them out. Some of them escape all the way up to Ramad. So they're doing something that they did once before in Ai, if you remember, in the, the book of Joshua. So they've fooled them with a false retreat and then they've ambushed them and then they've destroyed them and killed them in this ambush. Now look there in verse 48. In verse 48 says, and the man and the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, the men and the beast and all that they found and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. So the Israelites, they go even further than what they've been instructed to do. And they begin to raise these Benjamite cities, every man, every beast. Is killed. The cities are set on fire. Israel is basically what they're doing is they're they're putting their own tribe under the ban, like we found in Joshua. As they would come to these Canaanite cities, they would level them, they would destroy them, and they would move on. This is what they have done here without the permission of Yahweh to put them under the ban. But in their regret, the rest of the tribes of Israel, now they have to salvage the mess that they've created. They know now that by, by killing off all of these people in Benjamin, if they do not provide wives for the, for the holdups in the caves up in Ramon, these Benjamites that escaped, the warriors, then there will be no more Benjamin. They will have destroyed one of their own tribes completely and will vanish off the face of the earth. So they have this huge mess now that they have to clean up after. So as we look at this horrible story, this is like the climax of all of the bad stories that we find in the book of Judges. We look at this story, we have to ask the question, why, why is he telling this story? What is the author getting at? Why does he want us to read this story? What is the point? Well, here's the point. This is what happens when people live as though they have no king. This is the kind of thing that happens when we live as if we have no king. Throughout the book of Judges, the author reminds us over and over and over again that Israel was doing what? Whatever was right in their own eyes. Israel was doing whatever they thought was right. Whatever they wanted to do, that's what they were doing. And the reason that they were doing this is because they had no king in Israel. They had forsaken their king. It's not as though they didn't have a king over the people of Israel that they were covenanted to belong to. But they had rejected Yahweh. They had walked away from him and they had committed themselves to idols and, and loved these idols and worshipped these idols. And Israel's not alone in this issue. All of us here this morning, we struggle with the same problem, don't we? All of us struggle with the same problem. We want to be in control of our lives. We want to be the king over our lives. We want to be the queen who dictates what happens in our lives. We want to make our own destiny. We want to do what we want to do. We want to do what we think is right. All of us struggle with the same problem. And everyone throughout history has struggled with this same problem. Adam and Eve. They wanted to do things the way that they wanted to do them. They wanted to have knowledge. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to sit on the throne. They wanted to have dominion over everything, even God himself. 
in the story of Israel, when we look at their their past in the story of Israel coming out of Egypt, Pharaoh refuses over and over and over again. He refuses to submit to Yahweh's kingship. And what happens to him? His empire is completely destroyed. Israel committed themselves out in the desert to the kingship of Yahweh through a covenant. And then after receiving the land that they were promised, they reject their king. And they live as though they are the ones who get to call the shots. And they did whatever was right in their own eyes. So as we look at this story, we'll see what what happens when we try to live life as if we have no king. And we live our lives and do the things that are right that we think are right in our own eyes. And there's several principles that I think we can glean from this story that will help us understand what it looks like. Or what are the traits of someone who is living their life as though they have no king. The first of these is this. We neglect the truth. We neglect the truth. The Levite fails to tell the whole story, doesn't he? I mean, if we read through the story last week. We know now the context of what is happening. We know that he's not telling everything that needs to be told. And whenever we start to think that we're running the show for our own lives, well, the truth becomes more flexible. The truth oftentimes is the first thing to go. So look back at verses 4 down to verse 6. The Levite says, he says, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine to spend the night, and the leaders of Gibeah rose against me, and they surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. And so he says he took hold of her and cut her into pieces and sent her throughout the country. Now notice what he says. But also notice what he doesn't say. He says, they meant to kill me and they violated my concubine. You get that? They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine. Now, as I read this, the first thing I think about, oddly enough, is the walking dead. Now, I realize that probably not everybody in this room is a big fan of the walking dead. It's a show about zombies, and that's just weird. And it's weird that your pastor watches it. But here we are, okay? Makes me think of The Walking Dead. Now, in The Walking Dead, in season two, there is this episode. One of the main characters, his name is Shane, and he and this other fellow named Otis have gone to this school to retrieve some medication for a boy who's been shot. Anyway, backstory doesn't matter. He goes to the, they go to this high school to retrieve this medication. While they're at this high school, this high school is just invaded with this infestation of zombies, right? And so they're trying to get out. They're trying to do everything to get out of this, this, high, or this high school to get back to so they can give this medication to this boy. And so as they're leaving, these two men are, are going as fast as they can. But Shane, he trips, falls down, hurts his ankle. And Otis, this other fellow... He's beginning to gain a little bit more speed because now Shane's back up and he's walking, but he's hobbling. And so Shane knows these zombies are right on me. I have to do something. What am I going to do? What does he do? He shoots Otis in the leg. Otis falls down. And what does Shane do? He just keeps trucking just as slow as he can. And he knows if he can get to be faster than Otis, then that's as fast as he needs to be because all of the zombies are just going to stop and eat Otis. But now... He gets back to the, to the base camp. And what does he say? He says, well, they tried to get us. 
And Otis didn't make it. Now, is that true? Eh, it's kind of true. But you shot him in the leg. He was the one that shot him in the leg. If it wasn't for Shane, he would have been the one that was dead. If he hadn't shot Otis, he would have not left him there. And here we find in this story, it's the same thing. They asked the Levite, what happened? And the Levite says, they were trying to kill me, but they got her instead. He's not telling the whole truth. He's not saying, yeah, but I shoved her out the door. It was either me or her, and I chose myself over her. He's telling a lie that is so, so crazily bent and, and, and twisted. He doesn't tell the whole story. Friends, when you live your life as though you have no king, the truth becomes flexible. The lines of truth become blurry. And we lie for all kinds of things, don't we? We lie for all kinds of stuff. We lie because we want to impress people. Now, I don't lie about this kind of thing anymore, but, but maybe that lie about how much you can bench press, right? Now, I don't know if it really qualifies if you can like lift the thing, 200-pound thing, one time. Does that qualify you as being one who can bench 200 pounds? I think that maybe I flubbed that a little bit when I was younger. I don't lie about that kind of stuff anymore. But like we lie about those kinds of things because we want people to think well of us. We want people to think good things about us. We, we lie about whether or not how, how good we are with this next Apple product that comes out. How, how much of an internet guru we are. And we can find all the things that we want to be able to find on the internet. We want people to think good of us. We, we lie about what we got on a test grade. We lie about how we're doing at work. We lie about how our, our gross income is. How large it is. And we want people to think well of us. We want to impress people. And so maybe we don't just tell complete lies but we twist it a little bit or we leave a little bit of content out. We lie because we want to escape consequences. This is the case with him, isn't it? He doesn't want these people to know that he shoved this woman out to face her death. And so he just kind of hides that little part of the truth. But we, we lie because we, we want to escape the consequences. Adelaide Stevenson said, lying is an abomination to the Lord and a very present help in time of trouble. That's sometimes very true, isn't it? Or at least we think it is. We think it is. We lie because we want to keep the peace. How many times have you had that conversation at work or with that, with that family member and you know where that conversation is going and you just kind of begin to talk about something a little bit less confrontational? Or maybe you just stop talking altogether and your silence. That's as much of a lie about the truth and wonder of the gospel as if you were to say something that was completely false. We lie to keep the peace oftentimes. When we live as though we have no king, we neglect the truth. Second principle. When we live as though we have no king, we make rash decisions. We make rash decisions. Israel makes oaths. And sets herself to war against Benjamin. Look there in verse 8 of chapter 20. Right there in verse, verse 8. And all the people rose as one man saying, None of us will go to his tent. And none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. And we will take ten men of a hundred Throughout all the tribes of Israel and a hundred of a thousand and a thousand of ten thousand to bring provisions for the people. 
But when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. So what's happening here? They, they rise up like a mob. And this is an angry mob, isn't it? They're, they're angry about what has happened. They refuse to rest. They refuse to think. They refuse to pause, take counsel. And they leave their future in the hands of chance. Do you notice that? We will do this by lot. We will do this by lot. And they don't even inquire of the Lord at this point. They don't even go to the Lord. Now they've gathered in the name of the Lord, but they haven't inquired of him. The author makes that very distinct as we read down further. They wait until all of their oaths are made and they're set to invade. And then they ask the Lord. And they ask this. They say, who should go? They don't even ask, should we go? They just say, who should go? Who's going to go first? It's like that group of friends that gathers on the cliff and, you know, the first one gets pushed off. Right? Who's going to go first? Who's the one that's going to jump off? This is what's happening here. And this is true for us too, isn't it? Often as when we're ruled by our passions, when we're ruled by our own opinions, we make very foolish decisions. Friends, if you're, if you're constantly giving in to anger, you're going to say things that you regret. When you're hot-headed, you're going to say things that you regret. If you stay up late watching things on television or viewing things on the internet that you know are inappropriate, you know the consequences are going to be devastating. It's going to shape the way that you view your wife. It's going to determine the way that you understand marriage. A lack of submission to God's plan, a lack of submission to God's reign in your life will create a wake of poor decisions that you will constantly be cleaning up after. When we live as though we have no king, we make very rash decisions and we forfeit blessing. We forfeit blessing. The men of Judah and the men of Israel, they die in battle. This is what happens to them. They go to the Lord and he tells them to go out and fight, go out and fight. But what happens? He doesn't give them the victory. Could he? Could God, the first time they went out, slain all of the Benjamites through the hand of the Israelites? Yes, but he doesn't, does he? He could have given them, given them the victory, but he doesn't. Look at verse 18 in chapter 20. It says, the people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God. Finally, they inquire of God and they say, who shall go up for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord says, Judah shall go up first. And so what happens? Judah goes out into battle and they lose the battle. And so what happens? They go back to the Lord and they ask him again. It says the people of Israel went up and they wept before the Lord until the evening and they inquired of the Lord, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord says, go up against them. And the author is silent here. He doesn't tell us. But it seems as though the Lord is using Benjamin, the evil one, to judge Israel, the evil one. This is what we see all over the Old Testament. When the people of Israel, they walk away from the Lord, the Lord uses the evil nations to bring judgment upon them. And here in this case, two times, God sends them out to fight against their brothers and Benjamin slays them and destroys them. 
God's using both parties because they're both guilty of breaking the covenant to judge each other. And it isn't until the last time that Yahweh actually says, tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So because Israel is making all of these decisions and just kind of giving God that that little free publicity by including him in the little process of making their decision. But their, their decisions were already kind of sealed, sealed up and made. They didn't experience true blessing because of this. Now, you've probably done something similar, haven't you? Most of the time, verbally, we want to say, you know, we, we, we want to make the right decision. We want to make the decision God wants for us to make in our lives. But what? What most of the time is happening behind the scenes? We're not really seeking out the scriptures for wisdom. We're not really seeking out godly counsel from those uh, who are in authority over us. We're not seeking out counsel from parents or people that we can trust that are friends that that are having a, a deep relationship with God. But what do we do? We kind of set our mind on what we want to have happen in our lives, the choice that we want to make, and then we kind of give up this cursory prayer to God to say, oh, Lord, if this is what you want me to do, then uh, make, it, make it clear to me. Okay, well, thank you, Lord, for making it clear to me. That's what I'm going to do. We just kind of send up this cursory prayer for God. And so we begin to think in our mind, well, we're making decisions that are influenced by God. They're not being influenced by God. We're doing the very thing that we want to do. We're doing the same thing that the Israelites were doing. We've already set everything in motion. Everybody's gathered. All of the tribes. Everybody's set on the line to ready to invade Benjamin. And then we would say, well, I guess we better inquire of the Lord to see what we ought to do. All the while knowing this is what we're going to do. We do this as well. When we live as though we have no king, we will forfeit blessing. In our lives. When we live as though we have no king, we will make up our own rules. The elders of Israel, they swear to give their daughters, or they, they swear that they'll never give their daughters to Benjamin, which breaks the kinsman redeemer part of the covenant anyway. But the elders make an oath to give, to never give their daughters to the men of Benjamin. And they did this at Mitzvah before they even included Yahweh in the plans. So they made this, this oath. And then they've set themselves to do this very thing. Now, the Lord didn't call them to make this oath, did he? The Lord didn't call them to make this oath. So instead of repenting from this foolish oath and, and taking the consequences to restore Benjamin, what do they do? They concoct a plan to kidnap teenage girls. Now, I can't help but think of Jephthah. If you read back through the book of Judges, this is one story that we didn't touch on. But in, in Judges chapter 11, we have this man. His name is Jephthah. And Jephthah, he, he tries to, uh, to, to make a, a deal with God. He, he's wanting to barter with God. This is what he says. He says, God, if you will destroy the Ammonites for me, then whatever comes out of my house when I get home, I will offer up as a burnt offering. Doesn't that just seem like a stupid thing to do? I mean, honestly, I mean, was he in the was he in the, the, the way of just like having goats and oxen running in and out of his house through the front door? When you think about that, what do you think is going to come out of your front door when you come home from a long trip? More importantly, who do you think is going to come out of that front door? Well, what happens? His daughter comes out of the front door and he tears his robes and he cries because now he knows he's going to have to kill his own daughter. What a foolish, stupid thing to do. 
But this is what Jephthah does. Instead of, instead of taking the consequences on himself and breaking the vow, he takes the life of his own child. The elders of Israel refuse to break their foolish vow and instead make up their own minds and make up their own rules. And they begin to tra- traffic these young girls as though somehow God is going to be pleased with that. Now look at the, 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 the fifth principle. When we live as though we have no king, we will eventually attack the godly. We'll eventually attack the godly. The Benjamites steal wives from the city of Shiloh where the ark was. Look there in chapter 21 and verse 16. It says, Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go And lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to give them to them else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives and according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. So in their ignorance, the elders decide to go even further into their sin by not only requiring young virgins from an uncommitted city, which we didn't read in Jabesh Gilead. But now they tell these 200 men, these unmarried men of Benjamin to kidnap the young girls who are dancing in celebration at Shiloh. This is what happens when we forget That God is king over all of us. We lie. We make up our own rules. We begin hurting other people who are trying to follow God. Shiloh was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was resting. And Shiloh was really one of the last vestiges of covenantal faithfulness at this time. When we live as though we have no king, eventually we will begin attacking the faithful. We will begin mocking those who are are serious about sin. Those who are serious about trying to be faithful to God. We'll critique them harshly. We'll treat them poorly. So many times Christians love to hear. Maybe they wouldn't voice it, but they they love to hear when some of the mighty, some of the people who who are supposed to be so good and so godly fall down just a notch or two. Because in some twisted way, it makes us feel as though we're not that bad after all. The elders of the city were blinded by their own selfish sin. And they did not care about the innocent. The last trait that we notice from this story is that when we live as though we have no king, we pretend that everything is already as it should be. Everything is already as it should be. Israel returns to their inheritance. Look there in chapter 21 and verse 23. It says, and the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. 
And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his own inheritance. So they leave the scene of the crimes as though nothing had ever really happened. There was no problems. And why did they do this? Verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So friends, when you think about your own life, how are you going to live? How are you going to live? Will you, will you live your life doing your best? Doing what you think is right? Doing what is right in your own eyes? Having the best intentions, allowing those intentions to be the things that mark whether or not God is going to be pleased with you? Or will you do what is right in God's opinion? Left to ourselves, we're going to do a lot of things that look right in our own eyes, but don't look right in God's eyes. We'll worry and we'll fret about the things that we're trying to control in our lives. We'll become anxious. We'll, we'll become controlling, trying to control all of the different pieces and parts of our life. We try to sit on the throne of our lives, just like Adam and Eve did. Just like the Levite did. Just like the elders did. Just like the men of Gibeah did. But Jesus says that there's another way. In the Gospel of Matthew, he he says to his disciples, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all of these other things will be added unto you. So what is he saying? He's saying, seek after, yearn for, desire, submit yourself to the kingship of God in your life. Submit yourself to his reign in your decisions, his reign in your attitudes, his reign and your choices, and your actions, and your life plans. Seek after Him, and all of the other things in your life will make sense. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful this morning for Your Word. That as we look at Your Word, Lord, as we read through it together, we see these stories, we see the connection that those stories have with us. God, I pray that through your spirit, you would teach us to be more faithful Christians as we seek to model life after Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be people who do not live as though we do not have a king. That we would not live like atheists, but that we would live as though we do know there's a God. We do know that you are our God and that you are our king and that you you rule over our lives. Lord, give us the grace to submit in faith to what you have called us to. We pray this in Jesus' name.